Democracy Atomic bomb. Crime from threatening freedom. We fail and freedom fail. to Out of Order, a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. I am Rachel Hausenfreund, and we are going to talk about sanctions. Specifically, a little over a month ago, the Trump administration surprised allies, or maybe didn't surprise allies, but upset allies by announcing that it was going to withdraw from the Iran nuclear agreement, which we refer to as the JCPOA. The response to this hasn't been worked out yet. There are a lot of questions that the allies are dealing with, um, or allies and rivals, actually. And so we wanted to take that opportunity to talk about that case, but also the broader case of sanctions and the role sanctions and similar type of financial tools play in the global order and address the question of does the United States have improper unilateral sanctions power? Is it on the path to eroding that power? Or is that just a dream that Russia might have? So I'm joined to discuss this by three great GMF staffers who have a lot of different kinds of expertise to bring to this issue. I'm going to ask the three of you to introduce yourselves. Thank you, Rachel. I'm Doug Hengel. I'm a a non-resident fellow here at the German Marshall Fund. Uh, I work on energy and sanctions issues, and I have experience on both of those while working at the State Department. Hi, Rachel. My name is Josh Kirschenbaum. I'm a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy. I previously worked at the Treasury Department from 2011 to 2018. Uh, at two offices, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which implements financial sanctions, and at the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which uh, implements anti-money laundering authorities. And today we have a real transatlantic podcast because Andrew is sitting with me in our Berlin studio, air quotes around studio. Hello, I'm Andrew Small, senior fellow on the Edge Program at the German Marshall Fund, and uh, doing this out of Berlin this time rather than the same studio the others are in. Thanks, guys. Doug, I want to start with you, and I think we should start at the, the basics of this. How do sanctions work generally? Who makes the decisions about sanctions? Is it a free-for-all? And then how does it work once an initial decision has been made. I guess I would define sanctions as a kind of a course of action that falls uh, to address foreign policy or national security issues that fall somewhere between diplomacy and military action. Sanctions have been used uh, since at least the time of ancient Greece when Athens imposed a complete trade embargo on a, on a rival Greek city-state. So they've been around for a long time. Uh, the United Nations currently has 14 uh, sanctions regimes in place. Uh, those, by definition, are multilateral. They are enacted through the UN Security Council, uh, which means that any of the permanent five, the, the United States, UK, France, China, or Russia, can veto uh, a sanction, sanctions being put in place, which makes it more difficult to, to enact sanctions but they have a number of them in place, including on nuclear nonproliferation, counterterrorism, North Korea, and, and others. But you do run into the issue sometimes of the competing interests of world powers. Uh, Russia and China, for example, have vetoed several uh, resolutions regarding Syria. The United States is a, a big user of sanctions. Uh, we have 28 programs currently in place. I just checked on the website this morning. And they range from counterterrorism, nonproliferation, human rights, to uh, country programs on North Korea, Iran, Syria, Venezuela, and others. The European Union also has a number of sanctions regimes in place. Some of those overlap 
with what the UN and the United States has has have done, but there are also some different ones, including on Belarus and Myanmar. Um, so I, I should have noted that UN sanctions, once they're enacted by the Security Council, they're binding on all UN members. So you ask a question about whether it's a uh, UN decision or a free for all, and I think it's a uh, the answer is it's a little bit of of both. Uh, so I, th- I guess we'll discuss this a bit, but uh, generally sanctions are viewed as more effective when they're multilateral, but they may not be as strong when that happens. Uh, and I think it's important to point out that they're best used as part of a comprehensive strategy, not just to try to punish somebody. And there's a big debate about their effectiveness and. And how do you define that success? There's a specific part. I mean, sanctions is the prohibition against selling or selling things to or buying things from a certain country, roughly speaking. Uh, But there's an important financial aspect to sanctions that's really tied to U.S. tools, as far as I understand. Um, Joshua, do you want to say something about that? The U.S. has found that the financial or banking aspects of sanctions are a key uh, leverage point. that has to do with the fact that banks are highly regulated, critical infrastructure. There are a few large ones that clear most payments, international payments. They're highly regulated. They can be fined a lot of money, and they have a lot of money. So at, at one level, it's sort of a, an easy place to go to, to, to put pressure on an adversary using sanctions. But structurally, I think there are a few reasons why the financial piece of sanctions, in other words, preventing banking transactions or access to uh, financial services, is has emerged as a key uh, leverage point for the U.S., and that has to do with the role of the U.S. financial system in the world economy. And there are a few aspects to that. First of all, you have the role of the dollar, which is fairly unique. It's the primary currency used for cross-border payments worldwide um, because of its liquidity and stability. It's also the primary reserve currency, so it's the most popular currency for foreign governments to keep their financial reserves. The importance of the U.S. dollar also stems from the importance of U.S. capital markets. Companies and governments raise money here in the U.S. and or denominate their debt in dollars and need to make the payments in dollars. Um, so raising money from banks or bonds and other things. The U.S. economy is also important as the largest national economy in the world. I think it's still considered over uh, 20% of world GDP, if not measured, at purchasing power parity. So the single largest economy, so access to trade with the U.S. and the U.S. markets more generally is important. And then, of course, the broader political and military power and suasion that the U.S. brings to the table for all those reasons make financial sanctions a powerful tool. But I think the unique role of the U.S. financial system gives the United States an advantage in that area because of the uh, aspects I just delineated. There's really no one else comparable, not even uh, not even the euro zone. What about the Iran deal? How crucial were sanctions to the deal? Would this be, I mean, Doug said there's some controversy about how successful sanctions are. Is this an example of sanctions being successful or was it not that important? I, I think uh, the Iran deal would be the clearest cut case that I can think of by by far where sanctions were critical to the achievement of a foreign policy objective in that, uh, first of all, the deal itself was premised on the relief of U.S. and EU sanctions and U.N. sanctions, but most of all American sanctions in exchange for uh, Iranian concessions on the nuclear program. I mean, that's quite explicit. That's what the deal is about. So in that sense, it is very explicit. Um, at the same time, Iran's sanctions are the clearest cut example of concerted multilateral economic pressure being brought to bear through the use of sanctions. I think it brought more pressure to bear on a regime than any other example. And, and Iran, I think, was uniquely vulnerable due to its dependence on oil sales, for example. And it's also an instance where it's quite politically salient. In other words, everyone acknowledges this, that the sanctions were 
the key or a key driver, among others. So, yes, I agree with what uh, Josh said. I would just underline that this was a global coalition, and a key part of it was uh, meant to reduce Iran's ability to sell its oil in world markets, and that was very effective. Their uh, exports declined from about 2.5 million barrels a day to about 1 million barrels a day at, at the peak, and that certainly got their attention and got them to the negotiating table. So I think, I agree, that was a great uh, sanctions success. What we're talking about now is something much more unilateral. So you, you were talking about it being global. Andrew, so what was China's role initially and what is China's response? Okay, so China, um, if you look far enough uh, back in time, um, uh, China did participate in the sanctions, but not initially um, very enthusiastically. Um, there was one point in uh, way back where it was the EU3 that were involved um, primarily in the talks. In And in, in one meeting with the Chinese, they just went in to show a chart of uh, European oil imports going down and Chinese oil imports going up proportionately, um, where the Chinese virtually stormed out of uh, the meeting. Um, uh, latterly, um, there was a willingness for political reasons um, to, um, to to go along with uh, sanctions at the UN. There was still a certain amount of watering down of the UN um, sanctions that the, the Chinese um, undertook, but there was some enthusiasm um, about seeing... Uh, uh, Iran brought to the table for a deal. Um, but really the effective thing was um, uh, was the Treasury sanctions. Um, uh, China, uh, despite being a significant economic actor um, in, in the round, um, uh, is not as weighty uh, a figure in the international financial system. Uh, the renminbi hugely lags behind um, uh, not just the dollar, but uh, many other currencies um, in terms of um, uh, its significance. Um, so China is in some ways still a kind of financial pygmy, even if it's um, uh, even if its economy as a whole um, and the trading volumes are, are extremely um, high. Um, so China um, on its own in, in, in this respect has, has not been able to, um, uh, and, and has, has, uh, has, has not been in a position to attempt to provide a sort of alternative to uh, the US-dominated financial um, system. And the Chinese are um, always have, have, have been concerned about dollar hegemony. And, and we've seen this go through various instances because it's not just the Iran case. China um, and Chinese institutions um, uh, have, have faced problems in the North Korea case, in the Iran case, in the Russia case. Um, but this was a context in which there was also a degree of broader political consent behind um, what was going on. Um, the question now has been um, if almost all of the other actors um, involved in this uh, think uh, differently um, about, um, uh, uh, about attempts to preserve the JCPOA um, and are concerned about the implications of unilateral US sanctions, um, what is it that China can, um, can actually do um, in, in response if acting in coordination with, with others? Um, and in that respect, there's an Iran-related question and there's a, there's a broader question. Before we get to the broader question, because another big actor here is uh, the European Union. And the European Union, you know, spent years working on this Iran deal, considers it, you know, one of their, if not their by far biggest uh, foreign policy successes, the, the original deal. So, uh, and, and both Josh and Doug, you wrote things recently. Josh, you wrote a, a policy brief, basically, on the options for um, the EU and US to work together on whatever this new step will be post 
withdrawal of the JCPOA. So what about the EU? What options do they have? How are they looking at responding to this? To take a step back, I think that what needs to be explained in the case of the Iran sanctions is that it wasn't really about access, to Iran's access to U.S. markets. Iran has been under a broad American embargo since the mid-1990s. Um, the role that American sanctions played really was as an amplifying role or a coercive role to bring pressure from third countries against Iran. So the key run-up in pressure on Iran during the sanctions campaign beginning in 2010 and going through 2014 and 2015 was the use of what has been called secondary sanctions, meaning it declared policy that third country actors in Europe, Asia, the Middle East, or elsewhere could lose access to the U.S., U.S. markets, including U.S. Um, banking and financial services, if they were to engage in certain sanctioned types of activity with Iran, including oil purchases, investments in or services to the energy sector, et cetera. So it was the threat or the possibility of losing access to the U.S. that helped bring other countries' pressure to bear against Iran. And of course, this was done in a collaborative diplomatic way, as Doug referred to. So a key moment in the pressure against Iran was the EU boycott of Iranian oil in 2012. The role of the U.S. is, is critical for pressure on all countries that import Iranian oil, including Turkey, um, European Union, China, Russia, etc. But the EU action of sanctioning itself, both Iranian oil purchases as well as investments in Iranians in Iran's energy sector, was really quite crucial. So to answer your question, uh, as Doug referred to earlier, this isn't just replaying history. This is in some ways replaying it refracted or backwards. So now we have a situation where Europe disagrees with the U.S., and is uh, committed to maintaining and protecting uh, the agreement with Iran. So it remains to be seen if the U.S. can unilaterally force the Europeans out um, of the business with Iran to which they committed under the deal. My short answer to that is I think there are certain ways in which the U.S. probably can force European companies out, particularly energy majors who might invest in or provide services to Iranian oil and gas fields. I think the EU is likely exploring options to purchase Iranian oil and set up a special facility to do that outside the U.S. financial system. And I don't think there's a lot the U.S. can do to stop that. Doug, I want to get you on this too. Is Europe going to risk secondary sanctions? Then Josh mentioned a few things. What can they do? What are they thinking about doing? What would they need to do to maintain this deal somehow and successfully ignore U.S. sanctions? So this is taking place against the background of a pretty complex transatlantic relationship at the moment. We have significant trade tensions we have the U.S. president uh, saying negative things, apparently, about the, the EU. We had a, you know, a G7 summit recently, which uh, was not very positive. And then uh, right after the NATO summit, uh, Presidents Trump and Putin are going to meet. Um, and there's a threat of more tariffs potentially on EU automobile uh, exports to the United States, for example. So there's a lot on the tables. We can't think about the sanctions separate from all of that. So, and I don't know what that means for uh, some resolution of, of, of these uh, issues, whether it could be some major package deal or not. But um, so I think the, the, uh, the EU would like to resist um, the U.S. efforts to impose uh, uh, secondary sanctions. Uh, this will be basically up to individual companies to decide uh, whether they do business with Iran or with the United States in some sort of simpl simplistic way. You know, in that regard, given the size of the U.S. market, most companies are going to decide that uh, they don't want to risk U.S. sanctions. Now, there are some things like, like Josh mentioned that could be done to try to um, 
uh, provide alternative vehicles that would uh, be more resistant to U.S. sanctions. There's talk about this, uh, uh, I guess the EU plans to reinstitute this so-called blocking statute that would make it illegal for European companies, in this case, to comply with U.S. sanctions. But I don't think that's going to deter uh, the U.S. authorities from imposing such sanctions if they think they are, are, are warranted. Um, but the, the EU would have to find a way to around uh, this dependency on the dollar and the U.S. financial uh, system in order to continue its current activities with Iran, including purchasing uh, oil. So it looks for the moment like the U.S. is, going, is taking a very tough stance on this in uh, telling companies that they really have to end all of their activities with Iran, including oil purchases, as soon as possible. Uh, even th by this November. And so it's, it, we're going to reach a boiling point on this, I think, uh, pretty soon. Well, I'm going to ask the question that I think, you know, lots of people ask, which is the euro is a pretty major currency backed by a huge stable market. There are gigantic international German banks. There are big international French banks. Why is it that the EU can't just trade their energy, you know, buy and sell energy in euros with Iran or other countries. Europe is not using the U.S. banking system or the U.S. dollar to purchase uh, oil or petrochemicals or other products from Iran. Uh, broadly speaking, almost with a few limited exceptions related to humanitarian goods and certain other license activity, no payments um, can transit the U.S. financial system if it involves Iran particularly commerce with Iran. The Europeans likely have denominated the contracts in euros anyway. What we're talking about now is with the reimposition of secondary sanctions, European commercial banks in France or Germany or Italy or elsewhere would face losing U.S. dollar access if they were to continue to facilitate those sales. And that's not something they can risk. So European commercial banks absolutely cannot involve themselves in this anyway. Or we should say any bank, because there's no restriction right now. Under the sanctions, the oil sales had to go through a bank in the country of importation. That's not the case now. So a, a bank in Asia could facilitate uh, Iranian oil sales to Turkey or Europe or what have you. But any major commercial bank that has a global business is going to have to stop doing that. The same applies for an energy major like any in Italy or Total in, in France that has been involved in the Iranian development of the Iranian oil or gas sectors. The distinction I would make is that Europeans don't need a major commercial bank to import Iranian oil. They, the government can set up some sort of facility to do that. Either they can pick a bank that's willing to lose access to the U.S. that's going to limit itself to Europe and doesn't have uh, financing needs or cross-border liabilities with the U.S. that would need to make payments. They could set up a new institution to do that, or they could use some sort of government, either state development bank or a central bank, to do that. Uh, whether they will do that remains to be seen, but it's possible. There's no replacing the expertise and abilities of Total or any. The government doesn't have that. So the Europeans can try to find creative ways to create a facility to finance, insure, finance, ship, and, and pay for Iranian oil and bring it into Europe and then distribute it within Europe. That can be done. Uh, if they will have concerted, organized, collaborative action to actually set that up and do it and implement it successfully— I don't know, but it's possible. I think uh, the long-term development of the Iranian oil and gas fields, you need energy majors in there. And Doug knows more about that than I do, but I don't think the government can provide that. Andrew, if we're talking about a place that would have the concerted will and the capital 
and the political power to set up some kind of separate organization that would be willing to lose access to the dollar in order to kind of undermine the sanctions system and set up an alternative, it seems to me China would be the kind of place that could set up this kind of clearinghouse bank energy import-export system. So, I mean, in the relationship with Iran, China had actually be, had been intending to move from a sort of narrower energy relationship to something that was much more broad-based. Um, Iran was supposed to be embedded in the broader Belt and Road scheme. They talked about a plan to increase bilateral trade from uh, the current levels to $600 billion, a sort of slightly crazy uh, number. But the, the, the move that China has been looking to make is from these kind of uh, uh, the, the narrow energy deals that were there in, in, in the past to something that had uh, Iran as a sort of more embedded part of China's broader Belt and Road economic strategy. Um, that looks like the sort of thing that gets significantly inhibited by uh, US measures. It is possible for them to construct vehicles of the sort. I mean, in some ways, they already have um, uh, vehicles in place for some of the um, energy-specific deals. Um, but the interest they'd had um, was bringing in a much broader base of, of Chinese companies um, uh, to Iran for for, for investments. Um, and in the conversations that are taking place now with the, the, the Chinese, and there have, of course, been a number of conversations between the Europeans um, and, and the Chinese on these issues, uh, they're extremely cautious right now. Um, they're, they're not uh, talking about uh, stepping in in a particularly significant way. They're still making the claims that um, their businesses, which are in the, I mean, with the Belt and Road right now, they're supposed to be internationalizing, drawing in additional capital from other actors, um, uh, all of these sorts of things. Um, so for, for some of these actors who, who were supposed to be kind of stepping up their involvement in Iran, uh, they are still treading very carefully around the implications of, of, of US sanctions. Um, and they were already treading carefully around this. They haven't moved in in a very significant way in, in, in the last year or, or, or so while they kind of waited to see which way the wind was was, was blowing. Um, and as I was saying earlier, China doesn't think that it's in a position yet. Um, I mean, it isn't in a position uh, yet to, um, uh, to, to, to act as a sort of systemically important um, uh, financial actor. It's it stepped back in some ways in the last uh, two to three years, if anything. If you look at the usage of the renminbi, um, for instance, um, uh, as a result of capital controls that they've 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 put in place, um, if anything, uh, the the renminbi is used less for international settlement um, than it was. Now, this can move very quickly, but if you look at the agenda that's there at the moment, China is not looking to open its capital account. Um, so, uh, yes, there are things that, that that China can do, and they can do them for their for their energy firms. Um, what they what it looks and I mean what the I mean part of the discussions on the European side um, uh, w- with the Chinese I, th- I think the sense has been the Chinese want the Europeans to act they want to see where the EU comes out on all of this they want to see um, how much pressure they're willing to take um, and I mean the hope for China. Um, has been that you will have another really significant um, uh, financial actor uh, that's willing to push back against the US and construct uh, vehicles of its own um, and initiate. I mean, initiate some of those discussions um, perhaps with, with with the Chinese side for how this could be done cooperatively. But they don't want to be um, out front on this. They don't want to be out front. So, Doug, what do you think? Do you think that the EU is going to play this role that China wants them to play? That they're going to get together. Um and and come up with a real solution, a way to stand up to these sanctions? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. But uh, again, the, the U.S.-EU relationship is quite complicated uh, at, at the moment. 
Also, the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, certainly, that's uh, gotten a lot hotter in recent weeks on trade issues as well. So, you know, uh, I think for, uh, I, won't, I don't know about China, but at least for the EU, this is not the top issue on their agenda vis-a-vis the United States at the, at the moment. Um, so, I mean, I guess, as you mentioned, Rachel, earlier, this was a, a huge, considered a huge success for European foreign policy, uh, the, the JCPOA. So they're going to be very reluctant to walk away from it. The question is, will they take some really tough measures that will put them in really direct conflict with the United States in order to, to save it? I agree with Doug that you have to look at this not in a vacuum, but in the broader context where the Trump administration has been pushing very aggressively on a lot of uh, key European achievements, whether it's the Paris Accord or uh, some days NATO, <laughs> uh, the Iran agreement, uh, tr- open you know, free trade through tariffs and a variety of other variety of other uh, issues. I think that that this is particularly acute and pointed in that it's a very clear example of the United States attempting to dictate to the Europeans. It's not an example of we like the Paris Climate Accord we disagree with this, so we're withdrawing. With Iran, it's we disagree with this and we're withdrawing, and we're going to make you withdraw too, essentially. And so I believe that the EU at the commission level, the external action service led by uh, Federica Mogherini, has her speeches have used language that, lay, that lays out a course for attempting to break the sanctions. And she's used coded language that basically talks about creating facilities and other arrangements to basically work around each of the key areas of U.S. secondary sanctions pressure. So I think you outlined this in your policy brief, and, and um, Doug, I think you mentioned something similar in something in uh, a small text you wrote. I mean, there's the other option, which is basically the U.S. doesn't follow through with secondary sanctions. So the U.S. withdraws, they get to play hard in the sense of we're sanctioning, you know, we're withdrawing, we think it's a junk deal. It's a sort of political winner for, you know, some of the base. Then behind the scenes, they just enforce their sanctions, but no secondary sanctions, and therefore they kind of blink. And China and Europe keep moving forward without having to take any extreme measures. I mean, this seems like maybe the easy solution. There is a, a a waiver option. I mean, there's a foreign policy waiver, so the president could decide for national security reasons not to implement uh, uh, secondary sanctions. So that's always out there. So far, the stance has the, that has and his, I think, general behavior has been that that won't be the case. That he uh, that it's pushing very hard on these issues. We'll have to wait and see until closer to to the date, whether this is just a negotiating tactic or not. Um, there's also some oil market complications here where he could, you know, decide again closer to November that uh, the, re, you know, removal of Iranian oil from the market would, um, would uh, be a, a, a negative for the U.S. Uh, economy, for the global economy, and decide to walk walk back from from that. And I can talk about that if you'd like a bit. So that that's another complicating factor out there. But yes, he has a basically, yes, there is a waiver. They don't have to implement uh, these sanctions. They're not, they're not mandatory. So the president could decide for foreign policy reasons because we're making good progress in negotiations with the Europeans on additional steps on Iran or with, or with, with China and India and others that uh, there's no need to proceed with the sanctions at this time. I'd like to go around and just have you think about you know, for the different actors here. So Andrew, for China, Doug, for the EU, 
Josh, for the U.S., what's the best outcome here? I mean, what do they want? What, is, what does China want to happen? If they could sort of have it the way they want it, where does this go? Same for you, same for the U.S.? Okay, for for China, short-term outcome um, is there are some of the European uh, oil firms like Total pull out. Chinese firms are able to to go in and 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 snap up the the, the contracts. Uh, the Iranians had uh, the Iranians have been kind of fed up with the Chinese in all sorts of respects. Um, uh, this does create an environment in which. Um, because of their negotiating tactics, they they take an advantage of the weak position that Iran was in. Um, this puts Iran back in a position where um, they may be uh, more dependent on, on on Chinese money and 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 exports to to China. So on the economic side, the the, the Chinese are able to step in, but that you get. I, I don't think the Chinese necessarily expect the Europeans to be able to do a huge amount or see enough political will to do enough in the short term um, to save the JCPOA. Um, um, but that this creates a situation for uh, the EU where they start to look uh, over time at what mechanisms and uh, vehicles need to be put in place uh, to ensure that you have uh, a system that uh, is more resilient uh, against the capacity of the US to uh, impose sanctions unilaterally. Um, uh, and that's something that China would obviously be interested in in cooperating with if they see the political momentum uh, coming from outside. That's that The long-term goal for China um, is effectively, well, part of the long-term goal is effectively to break the dollar hegemony. Um, but I I think they can't do that in the in the near to medium term, but it looks very different if the uh, if if the EU is sufficiently put out not just by uh, the Iran case, but but other dimensions of what's playing out in the transatlantic relationship right now, and is is, is willing to look uh, more seriously um, at what might be required um, over the long term. So that I think would be um, a sort of benign outcome for China. Okay, Doug. What about what about the EU? I think the basic thing is to keep the JC uh, to continue the JCPOA. That there is a, enough be- the Iranians see enough benefit in it to continue the the agreement, um, and that the hope that there'll be a change in the U.S. position um, following presidential elections in 2020. Okay. I think for the U.S., um, we have the articulated demands and then the possible demands. Secretary of State Pompeo has laid out a list of about a dozen very far-reaching demands and has hinted at being willing to to offer Iran complete sanctions relief, including the primary sanctions embargo or maybe some sort of diplomatic uh, normalization. And these demands you know, are quite far-reaching, including basically a change in the nature of the regime, not, not stated so explicitly, but radical changes in Iran's role in the region and exportation of extremism and support for Hezbollah, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't think that's, you know, likely to be achieved through the existing channel right now. I, I think what's more possible is to improve the JCPOA and the core, uh, let's say, more hawkish American critiques of the JCPOA that I think have some merit as to its weaknesses are the timeline, which is 15 years, for the most uh, significant restrictions. So Iran, for example, is never allowed to develop a nuclear weapon under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT. But most of the restrictions under the deal on Iran's enrichment and maintenance of enriched uranium uh, start to dissipate by 15 years and bring it quite close to short breakout time. So that's a fair criticism. Uh, Another fair criticism is that the deal does not cover Iran's ballistic missile program, which can, of course, provide a delivery uh, means of delivery for a nuclear warhead were one to be developed 
Uh, and there's also some dispute or lack of clarity around the mechanisms to access military sites for IAE inspections, whether those could be clarified, streamlined, or improved. I think there's probably room to bring in those elements or strengthen them, uh, likely in exchange for some kind of additional concessions. Um, And so for the U.S., the best outcome would be to use this brinksmanship to restart talks with the Europeans, get their commitments to go back on those three areas and try to extract more concessions from Iran in exchange for some sort of quid pro quo. I don't know that there's even a vanishing chance of that happening, but that's sort of the positive outcome of withdrawal short of actually ripping the deal apart. That's a scenario where the deal stays in place. Um, If, in fact, that doesn't happen, that's not what the U.S. administration wants, then the U.S. has stated it will start imposing sanctions on people and we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. I think there is a scenario where the U.S. does back down, it's hard to put a like a percentage chance on it. I don't know. Is there anything, Doug, Josh, or Andrew, that we missed? Something we should really get into this discussion before we close it up? I think b- both uh, Josh and Andrew touched on on this, uh, the sort of the big, bigger systemic issue. Um, the United States' ability to uh, to be very tough on the sanctions front depends on uh, primarily on the U.S. market, the role of the U.S. dollar, uh, the, the overwhelming role of the U.S. in the international financial system. If, because of uh, resistance to uh, sanctions under uh, U.S. sanctions going forward, that Europe manages to come up with a workaround that it works and China joins in that in some fashion, uh, that could greatly weaken the ability of the United States to use this tool uh, effectively uh, going forward. The previous Secretary of Treasury, uh, Jack Lew, warned about this, um, and others have warned about it more recently. So, um, you know, this this could be the, the issue that forces other countries to find uh, ways around the U.S. Uh, system, and it weakens this very important foreign policy tool for the United States. So that's something to keep an eye on which, depending on how you want to see it, is bad for the U.S. foreign policy and its ability to act unilaterally, but might be good for sort of multilateral policies moving forward. It, it, it could uh, force us to do more things multilateral, which is, the I think, the, the best approach in, in any case, but it could just undermine the, the tool uh, uh, overall, which would, uh, which, uh, you know, could, uh, which would be a problem, I think. I was trying to find an optimistic end there, Doug, and you <laughs> you just wouldn't let it happen. But I think those are the times we're living in. So hopefully you guys have brought some cheery thinks and tanks with you to close up this conversation. I'm going to start with Josh. What would you like to tell us about something that you encountered recently that made you think or that you think totally tanked? Sure. I wanted to uh, flog a paper from uh, the Peterson Institute down the block here in D.C. and a French uh, researcher there named Nicolas Varone, who's an expert, leading expert on European financial regulation. So this is an illicit finance uh, think, but it's not related to sanctions. Uh, there's a lot of talk now in the EU about improving uh, anti-money laundering and illicit finance oversight there. Basically, anti-money laundering has been left to national competent authorities at the domestic level, despite increasing banking union around what's called prudential regulation and, uh, and uh, resolution of banks that fail. So while the Eurozone continues to come together more closely in banking regulation in general. Anti-money laundering, and of course, as a part of that, sanctions compliance 
has been left uh, to the national level with some problems, particularly in certain jurisdictions with more limited resources. The paper I wanted to uh, to promote is a new paper out in June from the Peterson Institute by Nicola Varone with the catchy title, EU Financial Services Policy Since 2007, Crisis Responses and Prospects, which puts in context how we got here, which is that the European Banking Union uh, and the, in particular the single, the single supervisory mechanism by which the European Central Bank is the ultimate authority for prudential regulation in the EU was a response to first the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008, but in particular the Eurozone crisis a few years later. Uh, so coming out of 2012, they created this banking union, which really took shape by 2014. And this was all about bringing to bear European Union capabilities and political pressure to assure that banks were stable in the EU, that there was a, a supranational backstop to prevent future bank runs. This was all about prudential regulation. Conduct was not a consideration. So things like sanctions compliance, things like anti-money laundering were not the issue of the day. And that's why now, several years later, we have a large eurozone with cross-border payments going back and forth, money flowing across borders and countries, and um, and we've left anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance to the national level, which I think is a major uh, weakness. And now, in the wake of some recent banking scandals in the EU, is on the agenda in Brussels to create some sort of a supervisory union or supervisory oversight that would handle illicit finance in addition to uh, what's termed prudential financial regulation. Wow. Okay. So Josh like one upped the wonkiness on our conversation with his um, his thing. So Doug, are you gonna talk to us about I don't know ancient Sanskrit or something? Hi. Uh, no, actually, I was just gonna reinforce uh, sort of the point I made earlier. My think is um, uh, a piece done by uh, Peter Harrell, who uh, used to be at the State Department working on sanctions, and Liz Rosenberg, who was at at Treasury working on these issues entitled, a uh, recent piece entitled, Trump's use of sanctions may be unsustainable. And they make the point that there have been some notable wins under this uh, current administration, particularly on North Korea uh, sanctions, uh, but those are multilateral. And, and they argue that there needs to be a strategy to shore up multilateral cooperation on sanctions, prevent uh, staff burnout at the Treasury Department, since they've been uh, working, it seems like, day and night on, on these issues and uh, uh, in a very aggressive way, and also to get ahead of some of these emerging trends that could undercut U.S. sanctions dominance. And I think that's, a, since we haven't touched upon that point, really, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about cryptocurrencies uh, uh, as a way around sanctions. Uh, uh, people should be looking at that. Uh, more immediately, things like the euro or the or the Chinese yuan, whether the Chinese think that this uh, their currency um, is ready for prime time, it, it seems to me that they're moving in that direction, and and things like uh, sanctions could accelerate that trend somehow. You know, perhaps working with the Europeans more closely too. So there's some trends underway here that um, could result in this. U.S. dominance of sanctions uh, to be undermined, and I don't think that's that's certainly not good for the United States, and I don't think in the long run that's good for the for the world either. Um, that sounds good. Sounds like sort of the intro to part two of the next conversation we're going to have. Andrew, what do you have? Uh, so I think it's the one year anniversary of a very interesting website that's been put together by the Paulson Institute at the University of Chicago called Macro Polo, um, which I recommend looking at all of the work they've. They've done over the first year. Um, it's a sort of uh, 
set of visualizations and um, blogs and various other things looking at the external impact of Chinese economic policy, but a lot of internal developments on the Chinese side as well. Um, some very kind of clever use of games and graphics and things. They had a um, pick your standing poly, standing bureau uh, Politburo standing committee lineup game um, uh, in the the run up to uh, party congress. Um, and you can go through and, and, and kind of look at all of all, all of the profiles of the people there. Um, you can go state by state, looking at all of the Chinese um, investments in every U.S. state, its relative significance in terms of the size of the state um, economy, the companies involved. Um, again, very kind of easy tool to jump in and do it. You can do in, uh, you can look at hukou reform, the uh, internal Chinese migration. Um, uh, there's there's a kind of very clever array of things that they've uh, they've put together over the the, the last year. So I'd, um, I'd I'd recommend of of the of the new initiatives on um, uh, Chinese economic policy. I, I think it's it's got some of the best cluster of material. You know, I'm gonna just to throw something on top and you know equalize the intellectual uh, playing field here. Something newer to any moms or anyone who knows moms. So I think that's everyone. Uh, I recommend the movie Tully. I saw that last week and it was. Great. So uh, thank you very much, Doug. Thank you very much, Josh. Thank you very much, Andrew, for joining me in Berlin, actually. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Out of Order podcast. It's a GMF podcast produced by the Out of Order team with Zachary Tarrant as our audio producer and designer. And we will hear you again in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm.